Today's reading is Matthew 19, 1-12. Now, when Jesus had finished those, these sayings, he went away from Galilee into the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, what not man separate? They said to him, Why then does Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife. But from the beginning it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, marries another, commits adultery, the disciples said to him, If such is the cause of a man with his wife, it is it better not to marry? They said to them, Not everyone can receive this thing, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been, been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Well, thank you for joining us here today on the happiest day of our lives. I hate it when brides and grooms say that. On their wedding day. Friends, your wedding day is not supposed to be the happiest day of your life. Because consider what you just announced to everyone. Well, we've peaked. Everything's downhill from here. And unfortunately, for some marriages, that's how it feels. You get over the euphoria of young love. And the excitement of the celebration, it passes, and then the day-in, day-out reality of marriage settles in. And some are left wondering, was that it? Was that the happiest day of our lives? These last two weeks, we've been studying this same section of biblical teaching in Matthew 19, because it has such widespread implications for our culture. If you missed the last two weeks of sermon, I encourage you to go onto the church website, to go on YouTube, to go to your favorite podcast player, and listen to the last two weeks of sermon to get the full context of the teaching that we find here in Matthew chapter 19. Two weeks ago, we were talking about what is male and female, what is woman, what is man, and we discovered male and female are not feelings, they're not experiences, but they're a biological binary that were designed and created by God from the very beginning. And then last week, we asked the question, well, why? Why is male and female? God created for us the biological binary from the beginning because of the beauty of marriage, is what we talked about last week. Marriage allows us the birth and the nurture of children and the blessing of society. So two weeks ago was, what is male and female? One week ago was why male and female, and this week is when. When male and female, specifically when male and female sin, or when divorce. 
You see, you can all be glad. I'm just going to tell you now, you can be glad. I was so close to making this another two-week sermon because I want to treat this topic with the attention and respect that it deserves. But I was able to condense it back into one week, but to make sure it fit in the time allotted, some of you, I heard you whispering, you're like, where did the other song go? It's in the bulletin, but we didn't sing it. Um, I wanted, I figured you all didn't want to be here all afternoon. So bear with me, because there's a lot here, and it's all so important to this discussion. Because the question is, when divorce? That's the question, actually, that Jesus was asked in this passage that starts the entire conversation. Verse 3. The Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, first, I just want to take note that this is a trap. This is a trap. Jesus knows the Pharisees are testing him. And I just want to note that because, friends, there's a difference between an honest question seeking an answer and a question seeking an argument. The Pharisees actually don't care about the answer. They're looking for an argument. And I highlight that just to note that what Jesus was responding to here was a hostile question. And as such, I don't believe he's giving us the totality of teaching around the practice of divorce, but he's responding to this hostile question that's meant to discredit him. But as we consider this issue, we can remember that this is not the first time that we've heard Jesus teach about marriage. If you've been with us through our entire series through Matthew's Gospel up to this point, you might remember that back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also taught about marriage and divorce. And that's in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Jesus taught, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Mark sounds really similar to what we actually see here in today's passage, doesn't it? Allowance for divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality was commonly agreed to in Jesus' day. Because, friends, marriage was recognized as a covenant. And a covenant is enacted in two parts. The first part of every covenant are oaths, vows, or promises. And the second part of every covenant is when you sign on the dotted line. You seal the covenant. And the first part of marriage, the covenant, is publicly to come before God and witnesses and to make oaths, to make vows to one another. And then after the oaths have been made, the second part of the marriage covenant is to sign on the dotted line. It's the ratification, the solemnization, the sealing of the covenant, and it's the act of sexual intimacy. Which is why every marriage service that I end, I end with the statement, you may kiss the bride. Friends, the kiss is a preview. It's a preview, a promise of coming attractions. Because they've just made the vows, and they will solemnize that that covenant together. Friends, sexuality is part of the marriage covenant. This is why sexuality can't be reduced to just mere physical activity, because sexuality actually has its part as the ratification, the affirmation, the very embodiment of the marriage covenant. And that's why our culture is in such chaos today. Because we've removed sexual activity 
from covenant. We have replaced commitment with consent, which is a cheap and a flimsy alternative. And hearts and lives are being damaged and destroyed because sex was designed to be part of oaths, promises, and commitments. It was designed as part of marriage. So why male and female? Marriage. And in the marriage, the two become one flesh. And Jesus seems to agree, participate in sexual intimacy outside of the covenant oath of marriage, and you're signing on the dotted line with the wrong person. And adultery does not make divorce necessary, but he seems to agree it does make divorce permissible. Both in his teaching on divorce in the Sermon on the Mount and here in today's Matthew 19 passage, we hear reference to the issuing of a certificate of divorce. And the teaching about the certificate of divorce that both Jesus and the Pharisees in this passage refer to comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Surprisingly, Deuteronomy 24 is the only place in the Torah, the only place in the law, where we get direct teaching about divorce, this one passage. And we will see it's direct teaching, not about the why or the when or the how of divorce. Again, this is Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, And if she goes out and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Friends, it's really interesting what this passage does not say as much as what this passage does say. We simply find uh, no prohibition, no condemnation, but an assumption that divorce happens. Verses 1 through 3 are simply a description. The issuing of the certificate of divorce is talked about with no commentary, no clarification. There's no instruction given as to when it's permissible to do so. We just get this matter-of-fact description of the commonly recognized procedure of divorce in that day. In fact, the only actual law or command in that whole passage is in verse 4. And that is the command that concerns the specific type of remarriage that's permissible. It's case law. And as one commentator pointed out, case laws don't articulate the ideal standards of righteousness. They provide directions for Israel's judges and political leaders on how to rule justly in light of the deeply broken and sinful situations they were likely to encounter. Deuteronomy 24's case law really addressing the after effects of divorce more than teaching about divorce itself. Notice there is no command to divorce. And I point that out because that was actually what Jesus was pointing out in Matthew 19. Again, look at Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verse 7. The Pharisees said to Jesus, Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus says to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. 
But from the beginning, it was not so. Do you notice the difference in verbs that are there? The Pharisees say, well, Moses commanded it. And Jesus says, Moses commanded no such thing. He described the situation. He described the brokenness. He described it, but he did not command it. He allowed it, but he did not command it. Friends, there's a difference between a description and a prescription. He described it, but he did not prescribe it. In fact, Jesus says the only reason why it was allowed was because of the hardness of your hearts. But nowhere did Moses ever command divorce. Divorce is described as the way it is sometimes in a broken world, but it is never prescribed as the way that it should be. Why male and female? Marriage. But when male and female sin, sometimes divorce. And friends, in the Bible, God never commands and He never celebrates divorce, but He allows it and He regulates it. You know, this is really the same thing that the United States Surgeon General does with cigarette smoking. The Surgeon General certainly doesn't command cigarette smoking. And it's not the way that he thinks it should be. But he does regulate cigarette smoking. And in the same way, Jesus declares in this passage, divorce is not a command of God, but it's a consequence of your heart's hardened by sin. And so we find that these restrictions are regulating this undesirable practice. In Matthew 19, 4-6, Jesus actually transcends this whole debate about permission and He points to the pattern. Notice that Jesus steps aside from the question of permission and He points back to the pattern. That's what we've been discussing and studying actually the last two weeks the pattern that we find in the creation account in Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. Excuse me. The pattern, the standard of what should be. So why male and female? Marriage. When male and female sin, sometimes divorce. But from the beginning, it was not so. That's not the pattern, Jesus says. Jesus says to the Pharisees, listen guys, Stop looking for permission and start looking to the pattern. Stop looking for permission and start honoring the pattern. Jesus is making clear that while not every divorce might be sinful, God hates what causes every single divorce. And that is sin. Sin is the unyielding hardness of our hearts. And that is what always causes divorce. And friends, God hates sin. God hates the ruinous effects of sin upon His good designs for male and female in marriage. God hates the pain that divorce always causes for everyone involved and especially for the children. God hates the abuse, the neglect, the unfaithfulness and the degradation that causes and accompanies many divorces. And of divorce, Jesus says, consider the pattern. This is not how it was supposed to be. This is not how it was supposed to be from the beginning. But because of sin, because of the hardness of your hearts, this is sometimes how it is. 
And we find that God gives, when he gives these commands in Scripture about divorce, such as Deuteronomy 24, what's he really doing? He's regulating an undesirable practice. He's mitigating the damage caused by that practice. He's trying to insulate the most vulnerable from abuse by that practice. However, our wicked hard hearts, we twist God's good purposes, and we find Deuteronomy 24 is being twisted in that day. And instead of mitigating and lessening divorce, we find that the Pharisees and the discussion of that day are actually widening divorce by Deuteronomy 24. Because you might have heard Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 starts with the statement about divorce happening. Why? Because the husband has found some indecency in his wife. Now this phrase, some indecency, is vague. And so rabbis throughout history had been debating How do we understand this phrase, some indecency? And there were two prominent schools in Jesus' day. One of them was the school of Rabbi Shammai that said, that said, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found some unchastity in her. For it is written because he has found in her indecency in anything. So according to Shammai, unless the wife has been sexually unfaithful, the husband does not have grounds to divorce. However, there was another school, the school of Rabbi Hillel, who said that he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. For it is written, because he has found in her indecency in anything. So the school of Hillel popularized what came to be called the any cause divorce. There was anything, any cause, including burned dinner, was a valid cause for divorce. And friends, that notice that this is the exact same clause that we hear Jesus use in Matthew 9.3. He says, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? It seems that Jesus is being tested by these hostile Pharisees. Whose interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 do you follow? Rabbi Shammai or Rabbi Hillel? And so note that using this any clause statement in verse 3 and his response about sexual immorality in verse 9, Jesus seems to take the narrower view of Rabbi Hillel. However, unlike most in first century Judaism of his day, Jesus does not say divorce is required in the case of adultery. In first century Jerusalem, the first century Judaism, many said divorce was required if there was an adulterer. Jesus says, no, it's not required, but it is permissible. And in verses 4 through 8, Jesus makes clear, and it's not God's pattern. Marriage is supposed to be for life. So even if divorce is permissible, you should honor God's pattern, he says, and every effort should be made to achieve restoration and not separate what God has brought together. In many ways, Jesus here actually transcends the debate. Do you notice? The Pharisees have shown up here today and they're asking, is it lawful? And Jesus goes, you didn't come asking, what does God desire? You didn't show up asking, well, what is God's design? You haven't come inquiring, what is God's will? Your question to me is clearly, how much can I get away with while still keeping the letter of the law? What's the bare minimum level of obedience? that is still acceptable, they're asking. And Jesus says, yeah, you're asking that because your hearts are hard. You don't actually care what God's pattern is. 
You don't actually care what God's desires. You don't actually care what God wants because you want what you want. So you're looking for a way to find a loophole that will allow you to fulfill the letter of the law while utterly ignoring the pattern and the goodness of God's design. Jesus says it's not about bare minimum obedience to the law of marriage. It's about learning to love the Lord of marriage. Friends, hear that again. It is not about bare minimum obedience to the law of marriage. It's about loving the Lord of marriage. We've heard Jesus lay out God's intentions and design for marriage from the creation account. And he says, you're so hardened that you don't care. You don't love the Lord of marriage. So, of course, you don't love his pattern and design. And you're looking for loopholes. Why male and female? Marriage. God's intention always has been and always will be that a man and woman should come together in marriage. And as Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And it might not be immediately obvious to us as we hear it today, but the gravity of Jesus' response clearly strikes fear in his disciples. Did you notice their response in verse 10? The disciples said, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. If God takes marriage that seriously, maybe it's better not to get married at all, is what they're saying. They recognize just how seriously God takes marriage, just how serious Jesus' teaching is here. And Jesus, in verses 11 through 12, he responds matter-of-factly. He says, well, not everyone can receive the saying, it's better not to marry, but only those to whom it's been given. He says, some have been given the gift of not marrying, the gift of singleness, and then he speaks of eunuchs. He talks about both those who are unable to have sexual relations because of birth defects or those because of castration. And then thirdly, Jesus speaks about eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He says, in other words, some people have actually chosen a life of celibacy for the sake of a focused dedication to serving the kingdom of heaven. People like the Apostle Paul, who talked about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so some, I just want to make a note, some have tried to distort Jesus' words here about eunuchs saying, look, somehow Jesus is teaching about other gender expressions. Or he's acknowledging gender is not binary. But friends, Jesus wasn't arguing for any kind of internal gender identity such as people talk about today. Eunuchs were men. They, were, they considered themselves to be men. They were regarded by others as men. Jesus is simply responding to his disciples' question, their outburst, by saying, yes, some have received the gift of singleness, but for all the rest of us who've received the gift of marriage, we need to take seriously God's pattern and his design. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Why male and female? Because of marriage. But when male and female sin, what then? Friends, when male and female's hearts are hard, what then? What about divorce. And as we approach a question like this, I want us to consider what is clear. First, what is clear? Friends, God's pattern of male and female is for life. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And church, for those who are in Christ, this pattern should be our passion. 
We should want to have hearts that desire to please Christ in all things, including in our marriages. The Pharisees' hearts were hardened. They did not love God, and they did not love what God loved, because they did not love marriage. They were looking for loopholes to get around God's law, because they wanted what they wanted regardless of what God wanted. Friends, how is your heart? How is your heart towards marriage? And if your heart is hard, if you lack a passion to make your marriage a God-glorifying relationship, if you're lacking a passion for your marriage, then start with prayer. Every morning, cry out to God that He would give you a heart for Him, for your spouse, a heart for marriage. Every evening in prayer, thank God for your spouse, for your marriage. Pray a blessing over your husband or your wife. Or even better, pray with your husband or your wife. Friends, if your heart is hard towards God, towards marriage, towards your spouse, start in prayer. Because only God changes hearts. But secondly, church, understand that you do not get to check out a marriage because you married the wrong person. Because the truth is we all married the wrong persons. You remember 2016? 2016 was a contentious election year. And yet the number one most read article in the New York Times that year had nothing to do with politics. The number one most read article in the New York Times in 2016 was titled, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. The author's premise was that we spend a lot of time looking for that perfect person, that person for whom our romantic feelings will never diminish, that person with whom I am perfectly compatible, and thus he or she will always fulfill my needs and make me happy ever after. But spoiler alert, he or she is not out there. There are no perfect persons left because my wife Leah already married the final perfect person. No, no, no. You know she's not here to hear that. Friends, there are no perfect persons. There are no perfect relationships. In marriage, we always commit ourselves to imperfect people. And friends, you may look and you may think the grass is greener in another relationship. However, I promise you, those greener pastures, if you leave for those greener pastures, you're going to find there dead brown spots also. Imperfections, frustrations. Because marriage is always about two sinners coming together and learning to love. So we always marry the wrong person. Even in the best marriages, love is hard. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Pastor Tim Keller writes that when counseling people, he says, I've often heard them say over and over, love shouldn't be this hard. It should come naturally. In response, I always say something like, well, I believe that. Wouldn't someone who wants to play professional baseball say, it shouldn't be hard to hit a fastball? Would somebody who wants to write the greatest American novel of her generation say, it shouldn't be hard to create believable characters and compelling narrative? Raw natural talent does not enable you to play baseball as a pro or write great literature without enduring discipline and enormous work. So why would it be easy to live lovingly and well with another human being in light of what is profoundly wrong within our human nature? Love is hard for us all because we all married the wrong people. 
So understand, divorce is not an option simply because you married a sinner. Simply because you married the wrong person. Thirdly, church, understand that marriages are not to be broken because of irreconcilable differences. Although irreconcilable differences are often cited in divorce proceedings, church, every single relationship has irreconcilable differences. Through their extensive, extensive marriage research, marriage therapists John and Julie Gottman have found that over two-thirds, over 70% of all the problems that we have in marriage are irreconcilable. One psychologist wrote, when choosing a long-term partner, you will inevitably be choosing a particular set of unsolvable problems that you will be grappling with for the next 10, 20, or 50 years. I have been married to Leah for 24 years, and after 24 years, I still want to neurotically get to the airport two hours before departure, and she still wants to dramatically run down the causeway as the airplane door is closing. Irreconcilable differences. And that's a funny example that makes us laugh. But we know, we know that so many of our differences, those irreconcilable differences are far more painful and challenging. Friends, even the most successful marriages, relationships, churches contain irreconcilable differences that cannot be resolved completely. You and your spouse have and will have irreconcilable differences because we all do. And so irreconcilable differences do not give us permission to break a marriage. In fact, church, could it be? Could it be that God in his wisdom is using those very irreconcilable differences to form in you the image of Jesus Christ? Could it be that those irreconcilable differences are not meant to break your marriage, but they are meant to break you and to break your pride and to shatter your sinful selfishness? In marriage, we learn to live and to love in differences as Christ uses those differences to make us more like him. And fourth, church, I want you to understand that divorce is never, ever a solution. It's never a solution. Family law mediator Tony Newhoff wrote an excellent book titled Before You Split. And in it, she writes about her experience as a former divorce attorney. This is what she writes. Splitting up may get rid of an issue or two, but it will create other problems you can't foresee. Now that I've seen so many people's lives after they've divorced, I can tell you without a doubt that you're not leaving all your pain behind when you leave your unhappy marriage. And she goes on later to write, I've also worked with a lot of clients who after divorcing told me, if I'd known then what I know now, I would have tried harder to save my marriage. They discovered they hadn't actually signed up for better stories, just different ones. Divorce moved some people into a new reality that proved to be more painful than the marriage ever was. No matter how you've ended up where you are in your marriage, divorce is usually not an easy way out. Church, divorce is never a solution. It is always a compromise. Divorce is never a solution. It is always a compromise. Divorce does not fix things. You simply trade one pain for another. 
You simply trade one hard for another. You simply trade one broken for another. Divorce is not a solution. It's a compromise. Which is why we should do everything in our power to honor the pattern of God's design. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now having said all that, the Bible matter-of-factly recognizes that because of our sin-hardened hearts, divorce happens. And while every divorce is caused by sin, not every divorce itself is sinful. Historically, two legitimate grounds for divorce have been recognized by the church. Adultery and desertion. And we hear that, for example, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which says, Nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage. Now, Matthew 19, we've already heard Jesus teach that adultery makes divorce permissible, but not inevitable. However, the teaching about desertion comes from the letter of 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, and he was teaching in 1 Corinthians 7 about issues in marriage that Jesus never talked about in his ministry because Jesus never encountered these in his ministry. For example, it's clear from passages like 1 Corinthians 7.39, 2 Corinthians 6.14, that a Christian shouldn't seek to be married to a non-Christian. But Paul was asked, well, what if one partner in the marriage becomes a Christian and the other one remains an unbeliever? Should the believing partner divorce the unbelieving partner? And Paul responded in 1 Corinthians 7.13, he says, if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And Paul actually encourages the believing partner to be a witness and a sanctifying influence upon her unbelieving partner and their children. However, Paul goes on to write in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates or deserts, then let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So if the unbelieving partner separates or deserts with no willingness to repent or return, then let him or her go, because in such cases the brother or sister is not enslaved. Now the phrase here in verse 15, in such cases, is plural, implying that this is one case among others in which the brother or sister is not enslaved and in which divorce is permissible. Because we've already heard divorce is permissible in the case of unrepentant adultery. It's permissible in the case of desertion. And I believe the Bible also teaches that divorce would be permissible in the case of a serious and habitually unrepentant sin, such as abuse. Because, friends, there are things that God hates more than he hates divorce. Consider the church is the family of God. And there is one thing that breaks our bond in the family of God. There's only one time when excommunication from the church is permissible. And it's habitual and unrepentant sin. Friends, the gospel says that all the sin that we repent of and confess can be forgiven and covered by the blood of Christ. And that is really good news for us because every one of us here sins. However, habitual and unrepentant sin causes division. And Matthew 18, which, friends, comes right before this teaching today in Matthew 19, Jesus is teaching 
about unrepentant sin in the church. And he says that if someone's in sin, the church should plead with that person to repent. However, Matthew 18, verse 17 says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Serious patterns of unrepentant sin cause divorce, separation from the family of God. When someone refuses to confess that there's a problem, when they refuse to repent, when they walk away and are unwilling to receive grace, excommunication becomes permissible in the case of the family of God. What about in our marriages? Serious and habitually unrepentant sins such as abuse. When he deserts or abandons the marriage by refusing to confess the problem. When she refuses to repent. When he walks away in body and in mind, unwilling to listen or work on it, divorce becomes permissible. Now in saying that, remember that the goal of church discipline is always repentance and restoration. And I believe we similarly see in Scripture that even divorce holds out the hope of repentance. In giving instructions to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. It's holding out a hope of repentance. Because, friends, sin which we do confess and repent of can be forgiven. And marriages can be saved. So we pray for and we plead for repentance for the partner to return to the marriage. However, if that partner deserts the marriage and continues unrepentantly in a serious and habitual sin, willfully denying there's a problem with no indications of returning or working on it, if the partner is unrepentant in sin against and causing harm to his spouse and his children, if that partner chooses unrepentant adultery and makes remarriage impossible, Paul writes, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Because, friends, there are things that God hates more than He hates divorce. Now, when we talk about repentance, I just want to make clear and understand I have never seen in my tenure perfect repentance. Repentance may be stumbling and slow, starting and stopping, one step forward, two steps back. But the question always is there movement? Is she still working? Is he still listening and responding? Not just lip service, but heart, content, heart commitment. And friends, that is never best determined by the individual who is being sinned against. God has given us the gift of the church. God has given us the gift of elders and trusted leaders. God has given us the gift of Christian therapists and counselors. God has given us the gift of those older and wiser than we are because we are not the best judge of ourselves or of our motivations or of our emotionally charged situation. God has given us the gift of the church sometimes to protect us from ourselves. Because divorce is never a solution. While sometimes it might be permissible, it is always a compromise. And friends, while we recognize today the gravity of divorce, and we remember, we remember that divorce is nowhere said 
in the Scriptures anywhere to be the unforgivable sin. Some have treated it as such. But it is nowhere said to be the unforgivable sin. So let us confess and repent of where, when, or how we might have sinned in marriage. Let us receive the grace in our need. Let us look to the God who redeems. Let us acknowledge the goodness of God and that He allows and blesses marriage and also remarriage. If you're struggling in your marriage, if you're struggling with this message and you'd like prayer, there'll be those up there in the service who would love to pray with you. If you're struggling and you want to talk, I would love to talk to you. Don't ever struggle alone. And friends, wherever you are, Do not seek to live the bare minimum of the law of marriage. Let us all seek to learn to love the Lord of marriage. Because only He might change our hard and our sinful hearts and conform our desires and our marriages to the good pattern that He has established. And let what those that God has joined together, man not separate. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us in our hardness. Our hardness and our sinfulness. Help us, Father, in our marriages, for they are not easy. Forgive us for our sin, where and when and how we have. And create in us a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within us. And glorify yourself in and through our marriages. In Jesus' name, amen. And friends, as we talk about forgiveness, 